Hello, and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Helen McKenna, a senior fellow here at the Fund, and your host for this episode. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by a wonderful and incredibly inspiring guest, someone who's been a nurse and health visitor, who went on to become the first sickle cell and thalassemia nurse specialist in the UK, and who then went on to become a professor of nursing, a dean of nursing, and a patron of the Sickle Cell Society, as well as fellow of the Royal College of Nursing. And as if that wasn't enough, she is now Emeritus Professor of Nursing at the University of West London, and in 2016 published her memoir called Mixed Blessings from a Cambridge Union, which I can highly recommend. And that someone is Professor Dame Elizabeth Anionwu, who also received a CBE for her services to nursing and in 2018 was named one of the 70 most influential nurses and midwives in the history of the NHS and just this week was named one of 100 greatest black Britons. Welcome, Dame Elizabeth. It's a true honour to have you with us on the King's Fund podcast. Thank you very much, Helen. I'm I'm really pleased to be invited to uh, do the podcast with you. Thank you. So later in the episode, we'll be talking in a bit more detail about your career and your leadership journey and much, much more. I have endless questions that I want to ask you. Before we start, just something a little bit lighthearted. As a published author, are there any characters from the world of books, whether that be fiction, nonfiction, history, who you'd like to meet? And if so, who? Actually, Elizabeth from Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> really? Is that one oh, of your favourite uh, books? What It was the first, let's say, very long book I read as a teenager. And the fact that I couldn't put the book down, I, mm. I just found it so funny. The opening sentences are, are just hilarious. And uh, I hadn't expected that from a classic, I have to yeah. be honest. And uh, I like Elizabeth. She's feisty and... Uh, Yes, so that's one. Brilliant. (laughs) So I wanted to begin, spend a little bit of time on your early years, because I guess your career has been absolutely stellar. But in your memoirs, you describe a childhood that sounds incredibly tough. Could you tell us a little bit about your upbringing? Yes, certainly. I, I called my memoirs Mixed Blessings from a Cambridge Union because I was the outcome of a short uh, affair. My father, who was studying law, and my mother, who was in her the second year studying classics. My mother came from a, a very strict, loving, but strict Catholic family. She wasn't married. She didn't get married to my father. So uh, my arrival caused a huge shock, scandal, But my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, were extremely supportive, despite the terrible time they went through, in a way. So my mother never, ever wanted to give me up for adoption. She was very obstinate about this, and but she just wasn't able to provide a home for me. And it took nine years for her to do this. So I came out of the children's home at that age and went to live with her and my stepfather in the Midlands. Unfortunately, that didn't last, although it started out all right. Obviously, my mother was very welcoming to, uh, and so was my stepfather, but he gradually changed towards me. And I later found out that partly due to, mainly due to the fact that he was being teased by his mates at work, uh, that he had half cast in the home. We're talking about the mid-50s. I was the only black child in the 
in the neighborhood. Um, so he started to physically abuse me as a result of the teasing. And I therefore, I was rescued by maternal grandparents and I went to the, live in the northwest of England for my adolescence. And then at 18, I came down to London to study nursing. So that sounds like a lot of upheaval and, and emotional distress as a young child. And, and I guess also what I'm hearing there is elements of racism and cultural attitudes of stigma at that time kind of shaping your experiences. Yes, you're absolutely right. I think I moved six times uh, in, in the space of 10 years. Wow, that's so much upheaval. Mm. So when did you first become interested in nursing and what do you think drove you in that direction? I was very, very young in the children's home, which was a Catholic institution run by nuns in Birmingham. And I had very, very bad eczema. And there was a, a, a I called her the white nun. All, all the nuns were white, but she wore a white habit instead of the traditional black one. Right. And I used to visit her regularly in I, the sick bay because of, I needed to get my eczema looked at and cream put on it in dressings. And changing the dressing could be extremely painful if it wasn't mm. done expertly. I used to look round the sick bay door to see whether the <laughs> white nun was there because she used to change my dressings without causing any pain. Yeah. In fact, she created laughter. She was very funny. And later on as an adult, I realized she was using distraction therapy. So I, I really idolised this woman because I, I didn't connect her to pain. When I discovered she was something called a nurse, yeah, that's what I decided I wanted to do. And I never swayed from that ambition. And so tell us about your first job in nursing and what that was like. Well, at the age of 16, my grandmother sent me back to live with my mother and stepfather. And I had to work. There was no question of me continuing with sixth form. So I became a um, school nurse assistant and it, it, was, it was great. It was what I needed. It, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I ended up working in a school, it would be called a child health clinic now, for a few months. But I had a lot of asthma and it was probably the stress of going back to live, not the stress of living with my mum, got on very well with my mum, but... My stepfather had been the one that had physically abused me, although when I went back at 16, he, there was no threat of that, but it wasn't that many years before that he had. And I think uh, the psychological stress impacted and created an exacerbation of my asthma. And the School Medical Office of Health was like a mentor to me looking back. And he arranged for me to transfer and work in what was then called a residential school for delicate children. It was in the countryside and it was for children with congenital heart problems, severe asthma, cerebral palsy, conditions like that. And it was exactly what I needed. I had my own bed sitting room. I made friends very easily. I loved the work. Um, and I had, it was like an 18 months oasis <laughs> of you know, no anxieties at all. Everything was provided, my accommodation, etc. Yes, and that, and then when I was eighteen, I went. I, I, that's when I went to London. And then when you when you got to London, you were in Paddington General. How did that go? 
Oh, I loved my three years studying to be a nurse at, at Paddington General Hospital. You see, while I was when I was about sixteen or seventeen, I had applied to four London teaching hospitals. All of them wanted to know the name of my father and the occupation of my father, which I didn't know because nobody spoke about my father. And they asked for a photograph of myself. I had seven O levels, so I had the academic requirements, but none of them replied to me. And the school medical officer of health, as I say, he really looked after me. He was he was just incandescent with rage. What's the matter with these hospitals? And he gave me the name of Paddington General Hospital. I think he had links, you know, as a medical student or something. So. I thoroughly enjoyed my student nursing days. I was very shy for the first year or so, but I made friends and I, I found it very difficult to uh, mix, go on, go to parties. I, I, mm. I was very, very painfully shy. Men used to scare the life out of me. So I missed out an awful lot of stuff in the 60s actually, but hey-ho, uh, I did enjoy my, my three-year programme, yes. You mentioned your father there and knowing his name until later and the kind of shyness that you that you experienced when you were first starting out as a nurse certainly that's not you don't come across as shy now was there something when you did eventually meet your father and kind of bridge both your identities your Nigerian ancestry heritage and your Irish British heritage together did that help to give you more confidence? Oh, definitely. I remember as a student nurse, sick with shyness, that knotted feeling in your stomach when you, when I had to go onto a new ward, meet new people. I always thought people were looking at me. Now, you know, what's that a sign of? It's I think it's insecurity, low self-esteem. And it, it, my confidence level gradually increased as I made friends, as I started to realise I could relate with patients very easily, that I had this sense of humour. I gradually realised actually I was quite, I was quite intelligent. And, but there was always this gap of when people would ask me, where are you from? Where are you from, my dear? And, and they weren't asking it necessarily in a negative way. It was just curiosity. But I knew quickly that they were looking at my brown skin colour and wanting me to explain that side of my heritage and I couldn't. So when I found my father, because I actually wrote to my mother and asked for his name, I had my mother's maiden name. So when I found my father, and I found him very, very quickly, and he happened to be in London, I was 25. And there's no question about it, Helen, it totally transformed me gradually. I mean, it took me some time to sort of behave toward him as a daughter. I'd never had this daughter-father relationship before. Again, my shyness and, and not having many male role models around me, father figures or whatever. But once I got used to that, it definitely increased my confidence. And I, I just knew then who I was. I knew both sides of my heritage. And it made life a lot easier. So but I knew my father for eight years before he died quite young, unfortunately. And halfway through, I decided to take on his surname. So I think that tells you I absolutely you know, adored my mother, so grateful for all my Irish heritage family and, and the support that they had given me. But there's no doubt about it that society saw me as a brown-skinned woman. And uh, so whilst I was at ease with my Irish white heritage, Life became much easier for me when I met my father and knew where 
the brown skin heritage came from, if you like. And it, I could it's as though I could hold my head up high. And when confronted with racism, it, inside, I'm quite a polite person. It's the convent upbringing, I think. <laughs> but inside, I, I would be swearing, actually, seriously. So that helped enormously that I think that all these deep-seated, repressed feelings of rage and anger and um, shame, you know, because I, I, was, I grew up where my skin colour was seen as negative. And suddenly I really was proud. And of course, it was during the era, we're talking about the early 70s in Britain, where the black civil rights movements impacted incredibly on me to not be ashamed of your skin colour, to carry an African Nigerian surname eventually, and do that with pride. Yeah. So I recently read an interview that you gave to the Royal College of Nursing magazine, where you said, it's not a glass ceiling for black nurses, it's a brick wall. I don't know if you recall that quote. Oh, I do, I do, yes. yes. And my colleague uh, Shilpa Ross and others here at the King's Fund recently published a research report looking at the lived experience of um, ethnic minority staff in the NHS, which highlighted, among other things, bias in recruitment and promotion processes. And I just wanted to ask you about how disappointing it is that in 2020 we're still in that position and what you think needs to change. Do you know, Helen, it's more than disappointing that we are still in this situation. It's scandalous, actually. And it's a blot on aspects of the health service. Not all, of course. The irony is people, on the whole, want to go into health care to care for people. And you would naively expect that they wouldn't have all these discriminatory uh, factors that um, impact on their behaviour. Obviously, as... I'm talking about myself now as I gradually learned what the real world was all about. Health professionals are part of society. Society is racist. Not everybody is racist, but society is racist. So why am I surprised <laughs> we have racism in the behaviour of certain um, health professionals? So it's it's not acceptable. I, I've gradually realised, I'm normally a half-glass full person, but... Um, Racism is here to stay. I think I do. I do love. I I used to hear more of this in the eighties and nineties, which was, whatever your attitudes are, they're, they're yours. We're not going to change your attitudes, but don't behave in that negative, discriminatory way at work. You do what you like in your own home. It's nothing to do with us. But racist behaviour, for example, homophobic uh, behaviour, sexist, misogynist, whatever, is unacceptable in the workplace. And if you do display that behaviour, you know, these were the really good workplaces, if you do display that behaviour, there will be actions as a result. That, I, I can live with that. I was naive. I always thought, you know, education could have... Nah, 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 nah. Um, well, I've seen very well-educated people who've been on various courses and then they've the mask has slipped and you, you realise, mm, for some people, mm-mm. I guess I'm naive then, because I, I, I guess just saying, oh, don't do it at work, keep it to your personal life. To me, that only stamps out the most egregious aspects of discriminatory behaviour in the workplace, because those are the ones that people will spot and do something about. But lots of it is also subtle, pervasive microaggressions that are very hard sometimes for 
other people to catch or call out. And is that, are you saying then that's something that we tolerate? No, I'm not saying we tolerate it. I'm just being realistic and <laughs> yeah. saying I'm pragmatic. And I, I'm I'm 73, Helen, and I, I'm just looking back on how experience has altered some of what I consider now naive aspirations, naive mm. hopes. I, I say I don't mean naive in a negative way. I think it's just it's part of life. No, of course it's not acceptable. And of course education and and uh, not tolerating mm. such behaviour should carry on. However, I, I just I've just realised that instinctively there appears to be a need for some people to feel superior towards others. Yeah. Now, there, there might be a whole set of psychological, economic reasons, whatever. I, you know, I haven't got the time to work out what it is. <laughs> All I know is that <laughs> it remains with some people, even though if they're astute enough, they'll know that in this situation, you don't demonstrate it. Yeah, yeah. But in this situation, maybe you can. Yeah. That's 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 really what I'm saying. Mm. And in your book, you also mention experiencing negative working culture and environment. And I was really interested in that because we recently published a report um, which was commissioned by the RCN Foundation exploring how we can support nurses and midwives to deliver high quality care and kind of looking at collective leadership and psychologically safe cultures and tackling um, excessive workloads. What what do you think could help address some of the stresses that nurses face in their work today? When I was uh, before lockdown and, and going around the country being invited to talk about my memoirs, it, it just reinforced what I was aware of, that there can be awful behaviour towards individuals and the stress that it causes them where they, they haven't got the choice to leave that situation. They're economically dependent on that job. It, it made me realise that a lot of these individuals need a safe, confidential space where they can reveal what is happening to them. And then you really then obviously want that whoever they're speaking to is in a position of authority to actually intervene and change something about the environmental circumstances, the work circumstances. What I also kept hearing is the sense of futility in in going to senior management. And often sometimes it was senior management anyway that were that had these negative racist behaviours. And it was though individuals were trapped in that work situation, which, you know, no wonder there's a high level of high blood pressure within the black community. No wonder they're vulnerable um, to COVID. The stress factors are horrible. They really are. So what is needed is is an organisational culture that knows what the heck is going on. Because sometimes I'm thinking, do 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 some of the managers know exactly what some of their staff are going through? I've been a manager, and this was in higher education, and I was managing nurse educationists, nurse tutors. It it was astounding what some individuals had put up with, and that really opened my eyes to wow. This is their workplace. This is where they're spending so much of their life. These are the pressures that they're under. And we're talking about pressures that they shouldn't have had. But that again, that, that was an eye-opener for me. Yeah. And I just wanted to spend a bit of time reflecting on your work on sickle cell. 
your career obviously evolved over time. Um, you became a health visitor and then you started specializing in sickle cell. And you were the first ever sickle cell and thalassemia nurse specialist in the UK. So I just wanted to ask what kind of led you to become interested in sickle cell? There were various factors, both personal and professional, and they they all happened around the same time in the early 1970s. And this was when I'd come back from France. I had met a, a, a French African midwife there who I had revealed when as a child I'd wash my face I don't know how many times 10 times to try and become white like my friends in the children's home and she said you know you really need to read Black Skin White Masks by Frantz Fanon. He he really described what I had been going through which was a gradual realisation of what what my full identity was and how part of my identity was negatively viewed by certain sections of society and how that could affect you if you didn't do anything about it. So that led me to realising actually uh, most of, well, virtually all my life I'd spent in a white environment. I needed to know a lot more black people. And that transformed my life, actually. I still retained relationships, with, obviously, and, and, and activities with my white colleagues and friends. But that led me to be interested in black health issues. And the one that stood out was sickle cell. Also, I'd met my father by this time. And I had I met my family members and one of my cousins had sickle cell anemia. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the personal and the professional all sort of rolled into one. Well, I would say personal, professional and political, the yeah. three Ps. And I then was working at the Central Middlesex Hospital. I had an office there. And I was fortunate to, to see Dr. Misha Brozovic, who was fairly recently arrived consultant hematologist was giving a series of talks, and one of them was on sickle cell anemia. I thought, wow. So I went to one of her talks and then and asked a lot of questions. She gave another lunchtime talk. I went to that, asked a lot of questions, and she came running after me after the second talk. So you seem very interested, and really, to cut a very long story short, I ended up working with her informally and then formally. She found funding to, for my salary as a sickle cell nurse specialist, and I got that idea that I could be more active in supporting sickle families from a nursing perspective only after I'd been to the United States partly on holiday but partly to look at sickle cell provisions in Los Angeles and that's where I met a sickle cell nurse specialist and I thought oh, hold on nurses can have a role came back discussed it with Dr Broderick she found the funding and that's that's how I became the first sickle cell nurse specialist. Brilliant. And um, obviously, you did so much work to improve the treatment of people with sickle cell anemia. And I just wondered, you mentioned in the book, you speculate on to what extent was there not sufficient um, prioritisation of that condition and uh, enough research going into it at that time, because it primarily affected um, ethnic minority communities. And I just wondered, in your view, are there other conditions now that are also not receiving enough attention or focus that the system should be thinking about? Well, of course... COVID-19 has, has just thrown that up. It's just as, it's like Black Lives Matter, the death of George Floyd, COVID and the horrific impact it's had on both black and minority ethnic communities, but black and minority health professionals as well. 
they've lost their lives and um and there was you know there, there is a feeling and I, I don't think there is evidence that you know they were disproportionately exposed sent to the front line had a higher viral load as a result what, what is all that about it's about racism pure and simple it's embedded within other factors that's what I, I really want to say. So um, you asked if there are other examples. I think there's a, a huge amount of evidence, and the King's Fund has, has played its part in, in, in disseminating this in terms of mental health. Yeah. I think mental health is the area that frightens me so much because it can destroy families, it can destroy individuals' quality of life. And way, way back, there was evidence coming out of the United States of stress caused by racism. Mm -hmm and its impact on physical and emotional uh, well-being of African-Americans. And we can see exactly the same effects. So you take all the environmental, all the social factors. So we know such communities are going to have the worst housing, the worst employment opportunities, the worst level of financial security, on and on and on. So how, you know, who's surprised that their mortality, their morbidity, all the statistics that one would look at are generally worse. Obviously, there are variations according to which minority ethnic groups you look at. The evidence is there. Clearly, it's the action that has to be taken. And there has to be trust and acknowledgement of the negativities that have gone on towards such communities. And actually, the bottom line is, do the, I'm going to call it white communities, white professionals, whites dominated services, are they prepared to acknowledge, actually, we've got to let go a bit, which actually, you know, might mean a few jobs going, because if we're serious about equitable access, equitable provision, we've got to give up. I mean, I think it's been called privilege or whatever. Will it happen? I'm, I'm not sure. It's, you can see it happening occasionally, but that's what's going to happen to have a, sh a shift in terms of the allocation resources, shift in the allocation of power. Yeah, it's great to hear you spell that out so clearly. And yeah, I, I agree. The evidence is all there. And actually, we had Professor David R. Williams come from Harvard and spoke about, you know, exactly what you're talking about. And also, as you say, this is about equity. And the NHS is, that's, that's one of the kind of founding principles. And yeah, so much more needs to be done. I've read that you played a key role in campaigning for a statue of Nurse Mary Seacole. Could you tell us a bit about who she was and the important role she played in the history of nursing? Yes, I'd like to acknowledge though the role that Lord Clive Soley played in establishing the Mary Seacole statue appeal, but based on being approached by four Caribbean women in his then constituency when he was an MP. And uh, I, I became vice chair of that appeal. Mary Seacole was a Jamaican Scottish nurse, doctress, entrepreneur, who in the 1850s made her own way out to the Crimean War and sold provisions, but also provided nursing care. And that's when she became famous to the British Victorian public and published her very incredible memoirs. And uh, so I see her as a role model. And uh, I just like the feistiness of Mary Seacole, but most importantly, her commitment to the care of sick and wounded and dying soldiers and uh, the courage that she displayed, but the humour and, you know, her entrepreneurial skills. So she didn't, she, didn't, she didn't come from wealth, she created wealth. And I think all those aspects are so relevant today. 
And until um, there were concerted efforts to raise her profile, she had kind of disappeared from from history. We're coming now into October and it will be Black History Month. And I know part of the work you did, you, you were shocked when you were talking to other nurses to learn that people didn't know about her. It wasn't part of their learning. It hadn't been part of your education either when you were learning, when you were training to be a nurse. I just wondered, are there medical professionals, black medical professionals who have been forgotten? Are there any that you'd like to, to name and for us to think about as we enter Black History Month. And not just Black History Month, obviously, but um, always. I, I would prefer, personally, that the recognition should be to the black health professionals today. I yeah. think we've got, we've got examples of... Uh, it isn't that difficult, if people really wanted to find out, just to go on to Google, seriously. Go on to Patrick Vernon's mm-hmm. um, 100 Black Britons over the years... And one can see black health professionals from the 1900s. People should just get that energy to do a little bit of research. Mm. Uh, And doing that, they should also be aware that there are around them some incredible black health professionals. I I would just like to flag up a group called Melanin Medics. They're active on Twitter. And the reason I'm, I'm so enthused by them, they're predominantly students. Um, it's wonderful to see this younger generation, or not necessarily always young, but new in the profession, whatever yeah. their age, uh, having the confidence to use social media in the way that they do it, and have the and and have the resources and and have the confidence to make the comments they and to link up with other people. I wanted to ask you um, about a time or moment in your leadership journey that you feel most proud of. The proudest moment for me was becoming the first sickle cell nurse specialist in the UK in 1979 because I do like innovation. I also like <laughs> I like dealing with challenges and being, you know, people trying to knock you back. I know that sounds a bit weird, but it happened when I became the first sickle cell nurse specialist. You know, oh, this is a minority. It's not. It's not. It's not a public health issue. And also working with the trustees in the Mary Seacole Memorial Statue Appeal because the some of the racist, negative comments that we were the subject of. That's what I'm proud of with others. I love working as a team. I, you know, I know I've got certain strengths. I've got a heck of a lot of weaknesses as well. And therefore, I love working within a team. And I think those are the two examples, the sickle cell movement in this country and the Mary Seacole statue appeal. And if people really want to know how things change, they need to look closely at the variety of people and organisations involved in ensuring change. It's very rarely one person. However, history does get rewritten. um, And so we've got to really be very careful not to be put on a pedestal. When you know (laughs) this was how it started, I joined and others joined, and then we had a movement. And um, who, who would have ever thought that three quarters of a million pounds would be raised over 13 years? to have this splendid monument in the grounds of St Thomas's Hospital, Mary Seacole, overlooking the River Thames, overlooking the Houses of Parliament. Yeah, it's brilliant, and she's Absolutely kind of marching. Absolutely splendid. She? And a yeah. nurse, a black nurse, yeah, yeah. a mixed-race nurse. And actually, so you touched on something. In both those examples, the Seacole statue and the sickle cell work, you talk about the opposition you faced and the barriers, and that was something I wanted to ask you about, was... 
just about how you how you managed to remain so determined and resilient despite some of the obstacles and knockbacks that you've faced when trying to achieve change? What gets you through? Some of the negative responses towards us about the Mary Seacole statue were absolutely vicious. I, I, and, you know, we didn't talk about it. It hurt a lot. And I remember one night not being able to go to sleep and crying. But what I gleaned from their attacks and their negativity and their opposition, what they didn't realise was the more they did that, it's just a small group, but the more I viewed this, saw how they were attacking, the more it gave me the determination. And I would talk to friends about it. And I think there's no doubt that we all need to learn to to listen to our body and realise when we're getting depressed, when we are getting too angry. I mean, you know, that your blood pressure is going up. However, it's to know who do you pick the phone up to? Who, who do you text? If you don't do that, it just overwhelms you. And you can give up or you can as I said, get depressed. And that's that's not going to help you and it's not going to help the campaign. But, you know, you have to you have to be constantly talking to yourself and, and trying to get yourself in balance and, as I said, not be overwhelmed with the small but persistent and vociferous negativity that can happen. So it's a very conscious effort that you have to mm. make to kind of stop your mind being distracted yeah. or kind of hearing too heavily the, the minority negativity. So in your memoirs, you talk about anger and resentment, about some of the experiences that you had. But even though the words are there, the feeling of anger, the emotion of anger, I don't feel as I'm reading your memoirs. You're very, I guess my take would be kind of half glass full and positive. And I just wonder how you how you do that. Is that a conscious thing too? Helen, that is something that so many people have fed back in terms of that book. Um, but people who know me also, and it's made me sort of reflect on, am I like that? What happens? Because I, I don't really think too deeply. I just get on with stuff. What I do, what I now am more conscious of is I do pick up when I'm feeling down and I deliberately do something that will boost my spirit. It's things like what helps me, music yeah. helps me enormously, reading, certain books anyway, um, <laughs> comedy, sense of humour. I love really belly laughing television programmes, yeah. Derry Girls. I don't know whether you ever saw the French comedy thing on Netflix, Call My Agent. No, but I've been... I Somebody oh, has recommended it to oh, me. You and just now have you to have watch it. I need to watch you it. You have to yeah. watch it because I, I did live in France and I do like to keep my French up. So there, there was the added bonus. It's in French, obviously right. subtitles. So it's just beautifully written. Absolutely hilarious. Gradually, I realised exercise was important. Mm -hmm. It took me a bit of time. <laughs> Friends, family and being aware of some people that you have to move around with, but that they can create a sort of negative feeling in you, not deliberately, yeah. but just being conscious of that. So... I'm aware now of things that will cheer me up, will get lift me out of the low moods. Mm. And also not to, not to be frightened of the fact that you have low moods. More importantly, what do you do to get out of them? And, and people have actually said, particularly after the memoirs came out, how do you keep your positivity up? What helps you? I'm not being puritanical now, but looking back, I don't drink, I don't smoke. Given up with men. Um, <laughs> you know, I've, I Is think that the secret? That's the secret to a healthy life. <laughs> 
um, and I, I do value my friends. I really do. And, and, and some of them are very, very patient with me. And I love them for that. And um, But bringing it close to home, obviously, I've got a daughter. I've got a granddaughter. Mm. I've got my flat. I feel safe in my flat, particularly mm. during all this COVID crisis. And, um, yeah. I think I'm at peace with myself now. I'm, I'm, I've got a, I've got a better balance mm. uh, in in terms of life. Yeah, and there's some really good tips in there. Okay, final question: If you could travel back in time and give one piece of advice to yourself as a young nurse starting her career, and I guess this is for the benefit of all those people listening who might be about to start their career as a nurse or have recently started, what would your advice be? So my advice would be that I wouldn't have been so shy and lacking in confidence about myself at the outset of my nursing career as a student. And that caused me, it, it blocked being able to uh, converse with many people and, 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 and benefit from their expertise, from their friendship. And, and all that was due to, we, I think we call it now low self-esteem. Looking back, I wished I'd recognised that I was intelligent, that I had a sense of humour, that I was very curious about life, and also that my mixed heritage was not a negative mm. issue. That all of these are strengths now, I realise, I didn't realise then, and I wished I had. That's good advice. And actually, sorry, I have one more question. Do you mind? <laughs> so you were, when you were talking about your work on sickle cell, you said it brought together the personal, professional and political. If you were, if somebody was asking you, where, how do I, where do I go with my career? How do I get energy for what I, for where to go? Would that be a piece of advice that you bring together those elements? I'm often asked that, or yeah, I'm often asked that actually. And one of the things I do say is, which aspect of your work do you really enjoy? Even though it might be very challenging, which is the area of work where you suddenly find that energy that you haven't found for a piece of work that you're not really that interested in? Which part of your work would you like to really spend much, much more time on? Hone in on that area, because that's without realising what I was doing, that's what I was doing. So the areas were improving the quality of care for the black community. I found that that was an area that I got a lot of energy with that. Fortunately, I think fortunately, discovered that sickle cell was an area where I could work with others and use that anger, use that energy uh, and really enjoy it. Absolutely. So I think looking back at my younger self, that's I, I wish I was aware of that. But I'd had such a sheltered upbringing that it took me longer. And I think sometimes, you know, we haven't got, you know, why waste that time? <laughs> try, try and learn about this earlier on in your career, mm. possibly. So follow, follow the energy. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Dame Elizabeth, for joining me today and for being so generous with your time. I've learned so much from you and I'm sure our listeners will too. Thank you. Thank you very much, Helen. I've thoroughly enjoyed our session. So that's it from us. You can find the show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. 
We'd love you to subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts as it helps others to find us and also helps us to improve the show. You can also get in touch with us via Twitter, either at the King's Fund account or my account at Helena Macarena. Thanks, as always, to you for listening, but also to our podcast team for this episode. Producer Ian Ford and researcher Jonathan Holmes, as well as our colleague in our leadership division, Mark Patterson. We hope you can join us next time.